0: Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman and that's Pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a -A a place for conversations that matter. And today we have a great conversation that really matters about food, the food environment, the politics of food, the science about food as medicine, and lots more with our guest, Dr. Sean Lucan. Now he's a practicing family physician in the Bronx. He treats kids and adults. He's an award-winning National Institute of Health funded investigator who's published numerous articles on food-related issues. He's co-authored one textbook on nutrition and another on stuff that I don't really like, which is biostatistics and epidemiology is okay, preventive medicine and public health. Now, he earned his MD and MPH, his master's in public health, at Yale before completing residency in family and community medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. After residency, he completed a fellowship in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, which is a big deal where he master's in health policy research. He's currently a fellow at the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine. And that is a big deal, guys. The National Academy of Medicine is the epicenter and the epitome of the best in science and medicine. And you only get in if you know what you're doing. Uh, Dr. Lukin's research, fo- research focuses on how different aspects of urban food environments can influence what people eat and what the implications are for obesity and chronic diseases, particularly in low-income and minority communities, which unfortunately are really targeted by the food industry. And some of your work was fascinating. We wanna get into that, about how deliberate targeting is made to low-income minority groups, even when they're not the highest volume, they're targeting them. Uh, Another focus of his work is the critical examination of the clinical guidance and public health initiatives that are related to nutrition. In other words, how do we make science into policy? All right. Welcome, Dr. Lucan. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro.
0: Okay. So you're a family doc. You're interested in community medicine. I'm a family doc. How did you get interested in this issue around food? Because clearly we don't learn about food in medical school and residency, and we certainly don't learn about health policy. We don't learn about the politics of food. And, and yet you've made this your life's work to really show the connections between the food environments that we live in and the behaviors that lead to obesity, diabetes, and chronic disease, and particularly in communities that are affected far more than others, communities of color, minorities, the underserved, the poor. This is just striking to me how this actually is so deliberate.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a family doctor. I treat uh, children and adults, and um, you know the patients that I see Predominantly are obese and suffer from diet related chronic diseases and it's Frustrating as a physician, as a provider, treating patients one on one, talking yourself blue in the face, giving the same advice over and over, and then seeing patients really struggle and not being able to succeed.
0: Which is what doctors get told to do: eat less, exercise more, come back in three months, and if you're not better, I'll give you medication. Yeah, that that just doesn't work.
1: <laughs> well, that doesn't work, and you know, part of the reason it doesn't work, especially in the communities where I work, is that there are such environmental obstacles or, or mm-hmm. contextual um, uh, barriers to people um, doing the things that they would otherwise want to do, um, you know, be motivated to do, uh, and just are challenged in getting done. Um, so, you know, I, you know, routinely counsel patients on, um, uh, diet and nutrition and making good, healthy choices and optimizing their eating. And then they go out into a world where that, um, you know, becomes a, a, a real difficulty for them. So during residency, I remember we did this, community survey where we went out and just kind of looked at the neighborhoods and saw where our patients were living and um tried to understand you know uh try to see life through their eyes mm-hmm. and one you of you actually the, went out into the community yeah people's we
0: actually, homes and their environments and actually got out of the clinic well, homes and, the and the environments office.
1: but also you know into the stores and into the retail environment mm-hmm. and you know having an interest in nutrition you know one of the things that i wanted to focus on was you know food sources and so we went into you know community grocery stores and it was there that i took a picture that i still use in presentations <laughs> to this day it's this you know impromptu this improvised wooden bin of kind of moldy onions and old potatoes and yeah that was the produce section yeah you know of a of a uh, supermarket you know it's called supermarket old, you know, it's ugly old rotten store. produce right terrible right and so and that you know was right next to shelf after shelf of you know highly processed refined you know, sugar added, um, you know, salty, unhealthful snacks that, um, and addictive and colorful and enticing and all those things, right? Heavily so marketed. Just, yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of an overwhelming, um, incentive or, 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 or over, or an overwhelming uh, impetus to eat poorly or to do, yeah. you know, to not have uh, the best diet It was
0: hard to make the right choice. Easy to make the wrong choice.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, the yeah. default was, um, the default was to not uh, do the healthy thing.
0: So, embedded a little bit in what you're talking about is the idea I think that's pretty strongly held by most nutritionists, doctors, certainly policymakers, and certainly the food industry, which is that it's all about personal responsibility, that your choices are your own, and that if you make bad choices, right. it's because it's a moral failing or you're weak or there's some issue with you yeah. that guides your choices. And if you just were serious about your health, you would just eat less and exercise more and everything will be fine. What's wrong with that idea?
1: I I think that's absolutely preposterous. I mean, I, I, you know, in my patients, I'm struck by how motivated people are, how much they want to get better, how uh, much effort they put into doing the thing that uh, will help them be healthier. Mm. And yet uh, being uh, stifled in every, uh, you know, at every turn, um by an environment that's just not supportive of those efforts. Um and so it's really, you know, it's 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 um it's really not a matter of will or willpower or determination. I mean, my patients have uh you know, buckets of all. <laughs> yeah. Uh and yet um are still, you know, find themselves in situations where uh it's just hard for them to succeed and um they're in an environment that's set up to, you know, um, uh, to to help them fail, really.
0: Yeah. So the the reason is because the environment that people are in is sort of a toxic nutritional landscape. It's a wasteland where you could, say, get moldy onions and limp rotten broccoli as opposed to some other stuff, which is cheaper and easier to get and more heavily promoted. And, you know, you, you write about something that's quite interesting in your research that I think people aren't aware of, which is, not only the obvious stuff, which is heavy food marketing by food industry, not only having all the junk food in all the convenience stores and even grocery stores, and not only just the fast food stores, but something you call OSB. Now, that is sort of an interesting concept, which is uh, something that actually drives a lot of behavior that people don't know about, and I really wasn't really aware of as a driver of a lot of the bad choices. Can you talk about what is OSB and why does it matter and how, how can we affect it?
1: So o- OSB is actually just a, an acronym that the journal came up with. So our first paper about this. So it stands for other storefront businesses. Um, but it just gets to the point that there is a lot of unexpected food sources out there. So when people think about the food environment or food deserts or food swamps or these toxic, mm. you know, landscapes of food, you know, everyone's talking about either the um, paucity of grocery stores or, you know, full service um, um, supermarkets. Or the overabundance of fast food outlets, but there are so many more sources of food out there uh, than just um, than just food stores and restaurants. Um, and to that point
0: like we, what like you mentioned barbershops gyms yeah, so hardware, these, hardware so, so stores laundry mats <laughs> I was in Staples
1: the other day right yeah you get food at Sta- Home Chalk, Depot
0: candy and Staples everywhere C- candy yeah. cookies snacks
1: yeah. um, you know potato chips sugar sweetened beverages of you know every uh, color and variety so um, it's like flashing it's neon everywhere. lights buy
0: this buy this and it's impulse buying and people don't actually impulse think about right. it and it's all in places where there naturally are but not normally a place where you would get food
1: well normally a place where you wouldn't think you would get food but it, increasingly it's everywhere and so another study that we did so not only just demonstrating the prevalence and how kind of ubiquitous it was but the fact that it's becoming even more prevalent even more yeah. ubiquitous so, so what what
0: percent of overall food consumption are these osbs for people who live in these urban or so food we can't comment or, on or consumption
1: marmits. we don't even know purchasing at this point but we can tell you you know the proportion of um uh, food sources that they represent. So yeah. they're as numerous uh, as restaurants at this point. So uh, the
0: volume of food available in those is as much as restaurants? So more, or? more numerous than more uh,
1: supermarkets, uh, more numerous than grocery stores, more numerous than food stores, and as numerous as restaurants currently. Mm. And that's been increasing. So we looked over a five-year period and there was a food of, there was food available in 30% more businesses five years after an initial look than there was when we looked, you know, kind wow, of so it's
0: accelerating. And they're not selling hummus and nuts at the checkout counter, right? What are they <laughs> not? Although
1: <laughs> I have to say, so, so, um, a third, uh, of all these kind of non-intuitive other storefront businesses offer food currently. Um, yeah. that represents about a quarter of all the healthful options out there and about two thirds of all the unhealthful options.
0: Meaning what's available in those is mostly unhealthy.
1: Disproportionately unhealthy. Although, you know, occasionally you will find, you know, so people will sell nuts, they'll sell dried fruit, they'll sell, you know, whole grain crackers, they'll sell things that are, you know, less detrimental to good eating and the kind of things that we want patients to choose, people to choose to be healthier. Yeah. But uh, those are overwhelmed generally by the, you know, the sodas and the candy and the chips and the cookies Mm -hmm. and the um you know the other things that we really don't want the meeting yeah um and so it's a big issue uh and it's one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention and that uh you know people have kind of glossed over and that you know it gets lost in the whole discussion about you know food deserts and food swamps and you know if a neighborhood has access to food or if they don't like no one's really considering Looking these things and, and so
0: how does that, how does that stuff get there
1: well, how does it get there uh, I think it gets there because uh, it sells right
0: so so the food industry is deliberately creating another channel oh, absolutely. distribution yes sort of under the radar yes that is hugely impactful and provides the volume far greater than we have estimated well, we have every
1: reason to believe that it is and you know what my research has uh, demonstrated um, and you know some of this is published already and some of it is uh, in press or under production but it's showing that the greatest, um, uh, the food is more prominent, more prevalent, available in more places, in more challenged neighborhoods, in neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are more disadvantaged, that suffer from diet and diet related um, diseases, um, and so it's interesting that it's not, you know, um, uniformly uh, available across the board. It tends to be more available in the communities that need it the least. Mm.
0: So it's pretty amazing. You're just sort of living your ivory tower you know, writing about this stuff. You're literally working in the Bronx in underserved neighborhoods with the poor and minorities, seeing this stuff every single day, living and working in that environment. So you've written a lot about how do we start to change these toxic food environments? What are the levers that we can pull? What are the strategies that we can use to help shift that? Because at the end of the day, it's the food system and the food environment that is the bigger determinant by far of health, obesity, diabetes, chronic disease than personal choice and responsibility. That's really clear. I think it's not certainly the consensus, but I think if you look at the data, there's no question about it. So what are are the kinds of things that you've talked about? Because it's not just, you're not just sort of criticizing this. You're talking about how do we change the food environment? What can we do creatively to actually make a difference? And how do we build on those things and scale them?
1: So I, I think there are a lot of levers at a lot of um, different levels, um, you know, certainly um, for physicians, for health systems. I think there's a lot we can do uh, or I think there's a lot more we can do. Uh, and there's been some uh, glimmers of hope and uh, things that people have done already. So, for instance, in our clinic, we've experimented with a bunch of um, initiatives to help address the issue of food mm-hmm. access in communities mm-hmm. and try to improve that. Uh, one thing is a fruit and vegetable prescription program, mm-hmm. so not initiated by us, but something that we tried and glommed onto. Uh, and, um, you know, so this is a, um, strategy whereby, you know, patients come into the office, they, uh, are suffering from obesity or diet related diseases, have a need for better food in their environment. And we write them a prescription just as we would for a medication or a device or any other like uh, six
0: nuts three times a day. Well, we write them a prescription that says you should be eating more
1: fruits and vegetables (laughs) or generally, you know, um, you know, some, some amount of fruits and vegetables. Uh, and then that serves not only as written advice from a physician, from a doctor, from a trusted source Mm -hmm. to do the good thing, but it also served as a coupon to then take to a local store to subsidize the purchase of those healthy foods. So how's
0: that, how's the mechanism of payment there? So the doctor writes a prescription, gives the prescription. does insurance pay for the groceries? The insurance does does not pay for the groceries. So this was, this is grant money, right? And so So it's it's basically philanthropy money.
1: Well, it is. And then, but so the idea is to get it started. Yeah. Uh, And then it's uh, working with the local stores, the corner stores so that the, and and grocery stores. And, you know, in some cases we also used farmer's markets Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to, um, to make the supply of healthful food more available mm-hmm. right so it works on kind of two levels so it's not only increasing demand by you know giving direct advice for patients to eat more yeah. but it's also working on the supply side by you know working with owners say you should stock this we're yeah. going to be sending patients to you this is going to create demand and opportunity uh, and ultimately what it does is it gets both consumer and uh, and um, and the businesses into the habit of uh, uh, exchange of healthy food, and it becomes more the norm, right? And it becomes, you know, something where you know, well, this corner store is offering you know fruits and vegetables. We're sending patients there. Patients are shopping at that corner store mm-hmm. now. The corner store that's not participating sees that they're losing business or that there's a competitive advantage to offering fruits and vegetables and they come onto the scene right and so there could be this you know extension or this ripple effect out in the community that makes the food environment healthier overall
0: so it pushes people to buy healthier food and businesses to stock healthier food
1: it does both of those things yeah so it works on both and i think any strategy is going to have to work on both the supply and the demand well
0: there's one other piece of that which is i work in cleveland and again with poor communities and you say somebody eat an avocado, they don't know what it is. Right. They never bought one or have some kale. They don't know what it is, how to make it. How do you deal with the problem of the lack of awareness of even what to do yeah. with these foods? Excellent
1: point. Excellent point. Um,
0: cause one thing is they eat this and then they go, well, here so it is. What I, do I I hear it. I did
1: some that? work, um, early during fellowship uh, with the food trust in Philadelphia, which is a uh, nonprofit organization dedicated to the idea that everyone should have access to healthful food. Uh, and there they did some corner store work that worked both on the supply and demand side. So on the, uh, on the supply side they worked with corner store owners to to stock you know fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and you know uh in forms that were appealing to kids so like cut up fruit salads mm-hmm. you know maybe with um you know, some, uh, shelf talkers or some advertising mm-hmm. that made it look appealing. Mm-hmm. And then,
0: um, you know, Tony some, the tiger for fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Or something
1: right? Exa- well, exactly. Right. You need to <laughs> brand some, a a or some icon called, or a logo.
0: Called super sprouts, which had, you know, Colby carrot and yeah. Brian broccoli, well, all exactly the superhero that. vegetables. And, and, <laughs> I, and, and I think
1: one of the aspects of their marketing or advertising was actually coming up with a uh, comic book to go along mm-hmm. with it. Uh, it's, so, and to kind of get kids
0: get your superpowers be yeah a make superhero it, make it cool vegetables. make it make yeah. it
1: something appealing to kids so that's on the uh demands uh, 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 on the supply side on the demand side they went into the schools and did tastings with kids demonstrations with kids so a lot of these are kids are growing up in families that generationally have lost cooking skills that have, you know, moved to, you know, processed and convenience items that are, you know, opening dinner from a box as opposed Mm to, you know, making it from scratch. And so a lot of these kids had never tasted a pepper. They'd never tasted a strawberry. They would never tasted, Mm -hmm. you know, different kinds of fruits and vegetables. And when they're given to them in fun shapes and novel ways and different mechanisms, kids actually like them. They like them. Yeah. And, you know, so you can, um, introduce the kids uh, you know, get their taste buds excited and then send them to the store where they see the item that they just had. And, you know, and again, it kind of sets up a loop. And so, you know, this takes grant money or seed money or, you know, some type of initiative to get things running. But once, you know, if you can, if you can find that magic point where you get it started, it creates a positive cycle that reinforces um, yeah. and it's good for communities. You know, the store owners have some reticence, right? I mean, they're, they're, you know, uh, they don't necessarily all jump onto the opportunity, but some realize a real business opportunity, a real opportunity to improve their communities. You know, many of the corner store owners mm-hmm. or small store owners are from the communities for that they're sure. working in. And so they have a vested interest in, you know, making their communities healthier. And so,
0: you know, those are, um, so finding the little tweaks that can help people stimulate different behaviors, right? Absolutely I, little I,
1: tweaks. And I think, and I think the more the better, right? Yeah. So, like, the food industry spends, you know, impossible amounts of money promoting, marketing, making available billions and stuff. And billions yeah, the stuff that dollars. we just do not want patients eating, or the things that are making patients sick. Quite right. frankly, yeah. I mean, they're selling sickness. Yeah, um, and to counter that, we need as many strategies as possible.
0: I mean, think about it. We spent <laughs> i think the data changed by the number ten and thirteen billion dollars spent on just advertising and marketing poor quality food. And the worse the food is, the more marketing and advertising they devote to, to it. And the um, it drives behavior. And the average kid sees six thousand to ten thousand ads for processed junk food on TV and media, and probably now. It's hard to measure, but through social media and stealth advertising, it's probably even more, it's more surreptitious. Even before they used to say, here's a picture of a baby in the 50s drinking 7up and Coca-Cola and how good it is to get them to drink their formula. That's obvious and terrible, nobody would go for that. Now it's all subliminal, it's celebrities, it's kind of you know friend marketing, and it seems like it's authentic and natural, but it's not, and it's deliberate. And it's one of the drivers of so much of the behavior. It's a problem.
1: Yeah, well, and, and to your point about surreptitious advertising, and, and uh, uh, I should come back later to some other strategies uh, that we're using in the clinic to yeah. help counter that. But we did that? a yeah. study um, in the Bronx actually looking at subway advertising. So this is something that, someone, that no one had really looked at <laughs> before. I mean, people <laughs> have done... Um, you know, this is shocking.
0: Everybody listen in because this is,
1: shocking. well, I mean, people have done studies looking at TV advertising and advertising Mm -hmm. on computer games and advert games and video, uh, you know, and all kinds of screen media. Um, but there hadn't been a lot looking at the environment where, you know, patients or particularly children, um, are living, are playing, are going to school or commuting back and forth. So we decided, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to go and see what was being promoted, uh, in the subway system Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the subway stations. Mm -hmm. And so, we rode every subway line, uh, in the Bronx got <laughs> off at every station and looked at every ad Wow! and, uh, characterized it. And so, you know, it's like 68 stations oh on like God. seven lines <laughs> and there were like 1500 ads. Uh, and we, you know, did a content analysis and measured their sizes and particularly we we're looking for uh, promotion of unhealthy foods and beverages. Yeah. What we found was that there was ad
0: for, ad for broccoli all over. So and there was grass-fed meats zero ads, not a single
1: <laughs> ad. <laughs> for a healthful food product,
0: not a single one eat almonds, nothing,
1: nothing. (laughs) Uh, however, as for unhealthful food products, so, uh, alcohol, sugar, sweetened beverages, sugary cereals, Mm -hmm, processed foods, mm -hmm. fast foods, Mm -hmm. uh, were disproportionately found in stations that were in neighborhoods, um, home to communities that were challenged by, you know, various demographic and diet related, uh, issues, more diabetes,
0: more obesity, more diabetes,
1: more more hypertension, more, uh, hypercholesterolemia, high cholesterol. Um, these are uh, poor minorities. These are are also more, uh, more poverty, Mm -hmm. lower education, Mm -hmm. more children in the neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. more foreign born, uh, Mm -hmm. more immigrants. Right. So, Adds disproportionately though that, so we looked and we said, well, maybe it's just a function of the fact that these are just the bigger, biggest stations, right? So like Yankee Stadium is a big outlier, uh, you know, it's a huge number of ads in Yankee Stadium. So we said maybe it's just a function of foot traffic, right? So you know, advertisers are just you know selling
0: to the eyeballs. biggest, they biggest possible m- Many audiences. eyeballs,
1: right? Yeah, many eyeballs as possible, right? So they're just you know putting their money where um you know the most where they can reach the most eyeballs and it just so happens that those are in these neighborhoods well it turns out exactly the opposite so it turns out that um, those unhealthful ads were not related proportionately to the amount of foot traffic or the number of eyeballs the inverse was true so it wasn't that they were trying to reach the biggest audiences they were trying to reach select audiences and the select audiences that they seem to be trying to reach were those who are most challenged right so poor minority foreign-born um, uh, children yeah. uh, living in poverty
0: so this is important for people to just pause and understand what this is about so basically these are areas where the worst affected by obesity disease poverty where the minorities live people who have lack of education and are the most burdened yet by volume of people, the number of eyeballs, it wasn't the greatest. It was just the ones that were at most risk. Now, why is that happening? Because it's much easier for the food industry to sell people who are already eating poorly more bad food than have you or I start to eating Coca-Cola, drinking Coca-Cola or eating processed food or having junk. So they target existing communities to create what they call heavy users. Michael Moss talked about in his book, yeah. Salter, in fact, this is a deliberate strategy by the food industry. Now, when you say, well, they're not bad actors or just have legacy products, they have unintended consequences, they're trying to shift their product formulation, okay, they are, maybe they are, but they're also employing these nefarious tactics, which are targeting the most at risk, and, and the ones who have the least amount of ability to stand up and have a voice for what's going on, the least ability to understand it. And also the, the most affected, I mean, this is in my view, criminal.
1: I agree 100% and I think it's awful. And I think, you know, the, the silver lining that came out of that research was that, um, uh, it happened to be published at a time when there was a huge campaign and, a uh, a lot of effort and interest in getting alcohol ads out of the subway system, yeah. out of the, out of mass transit. Um, and what we were able to document was that among the unhealthy food products, or food and beverage products that we looked at, we were able to subtract out alcohol and saw that the same, uh, relationships held, right. So the same disproportionate advertising, the same targeted marketing. Mm -hmm. And so that was compelling evidence to then bring to the MTA, you know, who runs the subway to, to say, you know, this, this is just unspeakable. Right. Um, and it moved, uh, it moved people. I mean, it, you know, it was one rare case where evidence can influence policy. And that's, unusual yeah. and rare in this day and age, but it wound up, you know, a unanimous vote to take alcohol ads out of mass transit um, vehicles and properties. Yeah. So across the whole system. So that was a win. However, as with any, you know, public health win or, or initiative, you know, you have to worry about unintended consequences. So while I was really happy about that, that, you know, children are no longer going to be, you know, children, minorities, the poor, uneducated, Uh, or lesser educated rather, uh, are not going to be exposed to alcohol ads on their daily commutes or as they go around the city, um, you know, go to and from their homes. Uh, What you have to worry about is what fills that space, right? Do do you think we should
0: be banning unhealthful advertising and marketing? Well,
1: my concern is that now that the alcohol advertising is gone, what's going to come in are ads for Mm Coca-Cola and Mm M&Ms and, you know, um, you know, other uh, unhealthful products that appeal to children more directly and that they're direct consumers of. Do I think we should ban it? So I'm always cautious about bans. So I think, you know, bans are well intended, but, you know, as I said, you know, as with any public health campaign, but particularly with bans, there are unintended consequences. Yeah. So you have to really think like what, you know, if you ban the unhealthy, you know, food products, for instance, you know, what comes in to fill that space? Mm-hmm.
0: Um Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um there's an initiative in Chile, which you probably heard around, which is a sweeping set of reforms we've chatted about on the podcast before. And I talked to Barry Popkin, who was one of the architects of the reforms in Mexico and Chile around food policy because they're so disproportionately affected by the yeah. obesity and diabetes epidemic. And what he said was they, they got a fair a bit of funding to look at the impact of the change of these policies. And one of the policies was eliminating any character cartoons from kids' marketing uh, or any products, right? right? So, cereal boxes can't have superheroes or anybody else on there. They eliminated any advertising in movies, rent, radio, TV, I think even online for kids between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Uh, and that they even put in an 80% soda tax. But what was more impactful than all the other policies was eliminating the marketing, like yep. fourfold bigger impact, which was shocking to me, and, and spoke to the fact that you know we have to find a way to deal with this. We are uh, one of the only uh, westernized or civilized countries or developed countries that allow unrestricted food marketing to kids. Now, because it was the First Amendment, right? We have right to free speech, corporations are people, according to the United, Citizens United, yeah. they should be able to sort of say whatever they want to say. Uh, and yet, um, we, we do regulate things around children differently. And I think when it comes to children and, and particularly given that 40% of kids are overweight now, that if a kid's a a teenager who's obese or overweight, they, their life expectancy is 13 years less than someone who's not at that age. Uh, these are really serious issues. And so, so I think, you know, we have to figure out how do we get the political will to do this? How do we get the data to show this impact? Some of the other countries are innovating around this. So if you were, you know, in charge. Well, well,
1: I was just going to say, I I think that's absolutely true. And it's exciting work that's, you know, come out of those other countries. Um, You know, in this country, I think we've focused on tobacco and alcohol, which I think everyone can agree are kind of unambiguously, um, you know, not good for kids Mm -hmm. to be uh, exposed to or, you know, early introduction to or initiation with. Um, It gets a little tricky in the food landscape. Um, because, you know, it becomes a question of, well, what is healthy? What is unhealthy? And how do you define that? And I actually think, you know, marketing for healthy foods could be a beneficial thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you mentioned right. earlier, you know, put a cartoon character well, on they, some they, they
0: don't eliminate marketing for food, just the unhealthy stuff. Well, and then yeah, how do then, you define but becomes, unhealthy? Yeah, how do you define unhealthy? And then I don't know. I think you and I could unhealthy? probably agree well, on how to we define Well, we probably un- could come <laughs> up with some definitions, <laughs> but, you know, and, th- and
1: this is what, you know, the pushback from the sugar sweetened beverage injury. And, and one of the tricky, you know, nuances and caveats has been tried in different uh, municipalities, right? So you know, certainly sugared sodas, right? But do diet sodas fall under that, you know, umbrella? Philadelphia thinks do so. Do juices, do juice drinks, do you yes. know, do flavored waters? Yes. Uh, that you know, right? So right, so you know, it, yeah. it becomes a sticky issue. Well um, you, I
0: just got back from Abu Dhabi, and uh, it's an interesting. It's an it's a benevolent leadership there, which is fairly autocratic. They can make very easy, quick decisions, and they're not beholden to the food industry because there's no taxation in the country. They get no revenue from the food industry. They really don't have investments in the food industry. There's no way for them to influence policy. And they yeah. had this massive obesity and diabetes epidemic. And they put in a 100% tax on energy drinks and a 50% tax on soda. Uh, and one of the products was Red Bull that was impacted. And the, I think of the finance minister from Austria, he said where I think Red Bull's from or something, called the guy who was sort of in the government said hey what's going on we're seeing a 70 percent reduction in consumption of this yeah and we're gonna have to lay off all these people it's like well we're we made the policy we're sorry that's how it's going and and the pushback from the food industry is quite strong
1: well and, and no doubt it would be i mean it you know cuts them uh directly into their profits
0: and this is by the way this is a government official calling oh, sure. another government official sure. saying your policies are hurting our companies which is you know not in the public health interest
1: right well so even uh even with the success that's been seen with some of these measures um a lot of that success has been narrowly conceptualized or focused just on food and i think you know particularly with advertising you know, as i mentioned before you know if advertising for food is eliminated something else comes in to fill that space and if that something else is not good for health either you know um i mean let's just say um uh, you know, in this country, we don't have tobacco advertising. Well, it's just that, you know, you eliminate food advertising and not tobacco advertising comes in or e-cigarette advertising comes in or advertising for, you know, um, misogynistic movies or, you know, or, yeah. you know, or things that, right like that, that impact people's health in other realms other than, you know, food or mm-hmm. uh, what they consume. You know, that's not necessarily a net benefit for public health. Um, and so I think that all has to be considered. And likewise with the sugar, you know, if you're, you know, Red Bull sales go down or sugar sweetened beverage sales go down, maybe that's a good thing, but does that trend? So maybe people aren't spending their money on their sugar sweetened beverages anymore. Now they're buying cookies and cakes and sweets instead and drinking, you know, is that necessarily
0: the win? Is that a better, um, well, I think they're looking at overall health or looking at obesity. I think you have to look at overall health. And I
1: think that's one of the problems with past research and one of the, um, you know, one of the things that where I think uh, research and policy and awareness needs to move into the future is that you can't narrowly look at single ingredients or single foods mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. diet in isolation from broader lifestyle and broader health. I think you have to look at the whole picture and see what the ultimate impact is on people, on communities, on quality of life.
0: Totally. So you're, you, you talk a lot about food as medicine and uh, when food isn't medicine. <laughs> um, and you, you really uh, highlight the lack of nutrition education in medical school that's been talked about. Um, and and you, you're a doctor in a healthcare system, and yet it's clear that the solutions aren't necessarily in the doctor's office. And you've really done a lot of work on looking at what are the, what are the approaches that a health system can take to own the health of their populations and communities through better health and nutrition practices. So, what are the kinds of initiatives that you've explored that could be fixes to the food disaster that's in the communities that you see?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, and as I mentioned, you know, it's frustrating in clinic to um, engage with patients one-on-one and 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 face all these obstacles. And so, I think, you know, the real um, solutions come from getting outside of the, the literal boxes of doctors' offices and clinics and hospitals and out into the community and making it so that um, the environment better supports people's um, uh, motivations to be healthy right, and, and their intent to do the right thing and to help them. Um, and so, as I said, you know, we've done some work in our clinic, you know, I mentioned the fruit and vegetable prescription program. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mentioned some of the work that the food trust has done. We've also done things like, um, you know, uh, directly try to impact impact uh, food access so we've uh partnered with a farmer's market that comes to our clinic uh during the farmer's market season so you go to the doctor's
0: office you can go to the farmer's market at the, the same factory, time and you can get a you know a, a again
1: you get a voucher right you get a you know written advice from the doctor a little uh financial subsidy and the you know fresh fruits and vegetables in appealing form you know or uh you know uh, freshly picked and right available to you. Uh, and we've also done, you know, things like cooking demonstrations and tastings to help, uh, patients understand what to do with these products. You know, a right. lot of them are foreign. Uh, uh, a lot of the products are foreign to patients, right? They haven't seen them before. They haven't tasted them before. They don't know what to do with them, how to prepare them, if they'll yeah. even like them yeah. and to shell out money for that is a big gamble and risk yeah. and not necessarily someone's going to take unless you can, Demonstrate to them, them. Oh, this is what it. you do. And this is how right. easy it is. And this is what and it they tastes want, like. And, and it, they want to know
0: and they want to know well, they We absolutely did a, we want did a, to a know. cooking class at Cleveland Clinic in one of the hospitals 300 people showed up. Yeah And we demonstrated how to make smoothies and different healthy yes. foods and and they were just so engaged and these were not, you know Sophisticated. Yeah, you know people who were shopping at Whole Foods They were right. people who just wanted to get better health who were often disadvantaged.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think uh I think that's crucially important um i mean other things that we've done uh are things like um bodega uh helping bodegas redesign so like you know going out into the community into the stores around our clinic and you know speaking with owners you know trying to incentivize them to stock healthy foods i mean the fruit and vegetable prescription so you walk into the
0: bodega with your white coat And you say, hey, you might even uh, go in
1: as a group of white coats and say, yeah, hey, I'm a doctor in the community. I care about the community. You're working in the community. You come from the community. You know, is there something we can do to help incentivize you to store healthier products or where can we make some? And then what do they say? Oh,
0: Nobody's going to buy it. They're not going to. Sometimes they
1: do. And so, so so you see what you can negotiate and see what you can experiment with. And sometimes it happens just by patient demand. Like. You know, if I tell patients that, you know, if you're going to be choosing bread, you want to choose like a whole grain bread or a sprouted bread. And they go to their store and they tell me all they have is white bread. Well, then that starts a conversation with the owner. And the patient says, you know, my doctor tells me I should have whole wheat bread. Would you carry whole wheat bread? Yeah. It astounds
0: me that, you know, white bread, chicken bread is just as bad as sugar, if not worse. Yeah. And they still put high fructose corn syrup in the bread. I don't understand. And like well, five other kinds of sweeteners. Well, I mean,
1: so you know, so talking about solutions outside it's like cake of cake bread. Yeah, no, it's, it's it is dessert bread. Um, and I think, um, you know, that gets to a bigger issue. So I, before I mentioned there are many levers on many levels, and that gets to a bigger level of, you know, our food production system and our subsidies, and you know how we do. Um, crop management in this country and what we mm-hmm. focus our interests on i mean mm-hmm. you know the amount of interest effort and um resources that go into producing corn and soybeans and you know mm-hmm. other commodity crops mm-hmm. that get then highly processed and injected into virtually everything uh, mm-hmm. is astronomical and yeah. if we better you know aligned our um our systems with healthy food production. I think it'd be better overall farm
0: bill revisions. Well, farm bill revisions,
1: but you know, so it'd be better for us, uh, as consumers. And then, you know, there's also arguments better for us as a planet, right? So, you know, we are, uh, our health is also related to the health of the planet. And when we don't, you know, respect the earth, I mean, you know, this is, this just happens to be where we live and we don't have a lot of options, uh, to go elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean,
0: people don't realize that, you know, eating, Processed food made from corn, wheat, and soy yeah. is actually a huge contributor to climate change. People yeah. think, oh, well, if you eat meat, it's going to be the problem. But no, the way we grow these commodity crops yeah. destroys the soil, yeah, clear, depletes yeah. the water supplies, right. the carbon can't be held in the soil. Reduces the forests. You know? yeah, yeah. yeah, clear cutting to yeah, yeah. raise more of these crops. And and so we're destroying the rainforest of, of the prairies, which is the soil, which actually probably has a bigger capacity to hold carbon and when people don't realize that so you're you're thinking oh, I'm eating you know you know soy corn and wheat I'm having I'm a plant-based diet and yet you might be just as big a contributor to climate change if you're not aware of how the food is grown
1: yeah although i will i will say that you know those those uh corn and soy products i mean a lot of those are used to feed our animals too, yeah well, right that's so, the other problem I mean, so the animal doesn't get a pass here uh, no it's a double whammy uh, no, yeah right. it's a total double whammy but yeah. i mean that, that's part of the animal production system and part of our you know a factory farming you know highly commercial industrial processing right so you know we've kind of gotten away from um, you know, everything has become big ag, you know, yeah. big production. So
0: what about small ag? You talk about some of the initiatives you're doing with community gardens. Community
1: gardens. Yeah. So, uh, so I, we had a and community how garden. How does the our health hospital.
0: system intersect with like, what's, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, these are all, you know, little small projects that I think can grow and blossom. Right. But I, I think there's real interest in that. And I, and, you know, I did a study in Philadelphia during fellowship where I talked to, um, uh, patients, well, community residents, really, um, about their, um, incentives, uh, a, a, about the things that, that promote, uh, healthy food production and the things that, um, you know, get them to, uh, eat otherwise. Yeah. And one of the things I heard, you know, we, we did a, a whole, um, um, uh, wide swath of patients, um, in the older patients, Predominantly, they were from the south. They were from farming traditions. Mm-hmm. They had grown mm-hmm. uh, crops um, as kids. They had. Um, they still engaged in gardening, mm-hmm. and they were, um, you know, involved in food production. Whereas, as you go through the uh, generations there's a loss of that food production knowledge. There's a loss of that Mm -hmm. food preparation knowledge. There's increased reliance on convenience and processed and packaged items. And so, um, bringing that back, you know, there, there is, there is a, um, there is a knowledge base there, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so the, the old heads in these communities were very much in favor of you know, producing food and growing food and community gardening. And I think get really excited when there are initiatives like that, where, you know, they don't have to rely on the food industry to, you know, supply, you know, these almost unrecognizable, you know, things that they would never have eaten as kids, but now have become part of their, you know, regular dietary pattern, you know, in old age, because, you know, our food system has changed so dramatically. So I think, um... You know, there there is opportunity there. It's um, huge, and, I, and
0: you get kids involved, and they love it. They you love know? gardening. They love. They're, growing they're food astounded, they but
1: they can't believe that food grows on a plant.
0: Yeah, my daughter they, thought we grew eggplant. She was like, "Where's the egg?" She was like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm gonna pick this. Maybe it's the egg."
1: <laughs> no, but when you see when you
0: see a piece of fruit
1: on mm-hmm. a plant, mm-hmm. and like you know, like the yeah. earth, the soil, the yeah. plant produced that that you eat. You know, because right, otherwise their, their, their whole right conception now. is divorce. It comes in a shrink racked package that they open yeah. up in the store and they think, you know, fruit comes from that's a can true. or fruit that's comes true. from a jar. No, mm-hmm. fruit comes from the plant. It comes from the earth and you can grow it and you yeah. can be self-sufficient and you don't have to rely on industry to provide you with <laughs> inferior product. You can, you know, be a part of that, you Where's know. It? And so in, in urban landscapes, that's more of a challenge. I mean, you know, there's
0: space issues and sure. stuff, but, but there are soil definitely, there are definitely lots body, yeah. that have been converted. Sure, You know, got to bring in salt from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing Make, making um, this point it sort of stimulates me to think about the victory gardens in World War II. So many people aren't aware that 40% of our food during World War II was produced from people's own home gardens. And, you know, we were at war. And in a sense, we're at war now. I mean, we, if, if there was another country that was causing 70% of our population to be obese— one in two people that have chronic disease that was costing literally 84 percent of our 20 percent gdp that's that's used for chronic disease yeah we'd be at war if if another country was doing to our kids what we're doing and the food industry is doing we'd be at war so maybe we need to think about the victory gardens a little bit differently here and say well let's let's re-engage people in the growing and production of food. You know, we used to have 50% of people on farms. Now we have less than two. Yeah, uh, And I think it's not that hard to grow stuff. You know, obviously you can't grow all well, your yeah, own food. Well, yeah, I mean, but- I don't think we
1: have to initially transition back to an agrarian uh, society. No. However, there are opportunities. I mean, so even when there aren't, you know, lots or soil available on land. I mean, there are all kinds of rooftop gardening, yeah, uh, which which have you know benefits not only for food production but also like community beautification and socialization, yeah. and, and heat retention. Have you been to the Grange and, in
0: Brooklyn and the big rooftop garden there? I haven't, but I've I've seen it and it's I know. Yeah, I've been to a similar setup ever, in yeah.
1: Chicago and it's it's unbelievable. Uh, there are also indoor growing options, growing walls and things. Um, there's a uh, Bronx teacher, Steve Ritz, who's become very famous and he does a lot of work mm. with uh, food production and getting kids engaged in, um, you know, taking ownership of their food. And, 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 you know, he does a lot with like green walls and, um, um, you know, indoor growing um, options, which are you know perfectly viable and yeah. something you can do even in the city um, and, you know, re- require a lot less resources than people think and, you know, can be uh beneficial on multiple fronts
0: so you're you're not just sort of conceiving of these things you're actually implementing these things in the bronx and poor communities what changes have you seen as a result of that
1: um well you know locally so you know in the so with our um you know programs around our clinic with like the uh bodega or small store redesign Mm -hmm. with the fruit and Mm -hmm. vegetable prescription program with the farmers market um uh, with the community gardens uh, we've also done things like bodega walks or, or grocery walks where, you know, you go out with a nutritionist or a doctor into the store. You do kind of a guided tour of the shelves, how to read a label, how to uh, look Hopefully at it's produce. a doctor who knows something about nutrition. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's you and one other guy in Bronx. Oh, right, right, <laughs> right. People motivated and educated and informed uh, to do this kind of work. Um, but, you know, through that, you know, patients become more engaged, more involved, mm-hmm. more aware, mm-hmm. more motivated and better prepared uh, better able to navigate these challenging environments. So,
0: you know, in many and you see cases, the change in your clinic and patient outcomes and th- their health.
1: I, so I have, I mean, I can point to select examples, right? I can't say that that's across the board, but, um, there, um, there's no question that a better prepared patient is better able to make changes, implement them. And I've had many patients, uh, who have been able to get off medication, Mm -hmm. improve their health, improve Mm -hmm. their, you know, their Mm -hmm. numbers, so to speak, you know, the ways that we, um, kind of track their progress from a chronic disease standpoint, um, just by virtue of making these lifestyle changes, Mm -hmm. just by virtue of changing what they're eating, uh, or, you know, making tweaks to, um, their, their food shopping and preparation and, uh, consumption patterns.
0: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know, the, the issue is, you know, how do we shift, health practice and health policy to motivate these changes. And right now I would say we really don't have evidence based medicine in America. We have reimbursement based medicine. Yeah. So there's an interesting pilot you probably heard about uh for a food pharmacy by Geisinger Health Systems in Pennsylvania where they took food insecure diabetics. These were people who were just worry about where they're gonna get food, they don't have a lot of money, they're poorly controlled, they're you know, just struggling. They identified these patients. They gave them twenty four hundred dollars a year for food, for food pantries and groceries. And then they provided the support for them to actually know what to do with it. Yeah. They provide health coaches, nutritionists, education, support groups, and they followed these patients for a year. And the average patient, because they were you know they were having amputations and hospitalizations and complications, their costs were astronomical two hundred forty thousand dollars per patient. Yeah. And in one year, just by giving $2,400 of food and a little social support, they were able to save 192,000 per patient. That's 80% savings while dramatically improving their health yeah. and lowering the hemoglobin C, their average blood sugar, and getting them off medications. Yeah. And yet, this is not something that's paid for. So.
1: Well, and I think that's the critical point. I mean, I think you've, uh, you know alluded to that before. Like, how, you know, it's about political will. And who bears the cost? So there can be tremendous cost savings, but who reaps those benefits, and you know who um, you know pays to get these initiatives started? And I think that misalignment is one yeah. of the big barriers or issues right now. But I mean, there are a lot of strategies that you can experiment with. Yeah, um, you know, we there have also been um, you know health systems that have experimented with food pantries actually in. The health system themselves are in the hospitals that have done, um, CSAs, a community supported agriculture where local farms will come and deliver a box of, you know, goods that patients can pick up at a clinic site or at a hospital site or things like that. Um, so there are ways to engage, you know, and, and, and actually one of the, um, things that I've been interested in that my research has, um, you know, uh, kind of got me thinking about is, uh, how do we change the landscape? that is changing, right? So this, this landscape is becoming more uh, unhealthful, right? So there's more food available and more of it is less healthful. Mm-hmm. Some of that works published already. Some of it is, yep. is under production and, and should be coming out soon, but we've documented that over time, there's more food available in more places and more of it is just not good for good health. Right. And so much of that is driven by the storefront landscape Right. So the food stores, the restaurants, but then of these uh, these these OSB or other storefront businesses. And so what do you do to combat that or what do you do to, to, um, you know, work against those forces? So I think mobile options hold a lot of promise. Um, because they aren't restricted or constrained by, you know, the, the, the storefront model. So you don't need the capital. like a food you know, truck you know, or a food Like a food truck or, a, or, yeah, or, or, or a, a green cart or, you know, in um, New York City, we have these fresh, these green carts, which are fresh fruit and vegetable vendors, which can, you know, move from place to place even within a given day. Yeah. And they can, you know, come into a neighborhood and, you know, make available, uh, you know, healthful products to uh, patients, communities, uh, residents in need, uh, and you know, be in multiple places, you know, throughout a day. And so, what know, do these look
0: like? Are These refrigerated buses, no, or are refri- they like well, so push carts like my grandmother carts. used yeah. to use in the Lower East Side? So,
1: so generally they're push carts. Um, so we did a we did a, uh, a couple studies of the um, mobile vendors uh, across the Bronx, and what we mm. found was that um, you know a small percentage of them are these um, Department of Health uh, condone endorsed. Green carts. So, this is a um, city program, which is uh, unprocessed fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, which are available on a push cart and can go into neighborhoods that are, you know, the city has designated as challenged, which is most of the Bronx. It's, yeah. It's almost the entire surface area yeah. of the Bronx. Um, that said, though, we found that um, the vast majority, so over two thirds, or, or about, sorry, about two thirds of all the vendors out there. Were unlicensed, unpermitted, and people just selling, you know, impromptu from you know improvised setups out of the back of a car, out yeah, of the side of a van, and you know, out of a blanket on the street. I think that's great <laughs> when they're selling healthful foods, mm-hmm. majority of the time, they're not. So, majority yeah. of the time, they're selling junk, you know, chips and candy and cookies and homemade pastries and you know, other stuff. However, this this is
0: sort of a a natural sort of industry that's in those communities. It's a natural
1: industry in the communities. However, there are vendors that are selling, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and healthier products. And I think if we can incentivize those, if we can, you know, make it so that there are policies that, you know, um, support and promote the placement of those types of vendors and communities in need uh, and getting them to, to the people that, uh, would really benefit from having access to them, then I think that could be a real positive thing and, you know, could reap... Uh, so how do you
0: support these mobile vendors?
1: Well, there are a number of ways. So, I mean, one thing... you So so they are selling perishable products. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and fruits and vegetables aren't necessarily cheap, right? So if you can uh, come up with, like, some bulk purchasing arrangements so that they can negotiate for, like, lower prices and, you know, have them kind of buy en masse to help keep prices down, that's one thing. Uh, Another thing might be, um, you know, supporting the purchase of the vehicle themselves, right? So, I mean, that's out of pocket money for the vendor. But if they could could be some subsidy just in terms of, um, you know, loans for the cart or Mm -hmm. for the van or Mm -hmm. for the truck or whatever vehicle Mm -hmm. they're vending from uh, or some prioritized uh, or or, um, um, uh, some special treatment in terms of the permitting or licensing or Mm -hmm. where they can uh, sell or things like that. Um, so these are
0: organically developed businesses. These are not something that some company designs that we're going to pay mobile food carts. They're just like there already. Well, the, the
1: green carts are a city program, the, the official green carts. Yeah. Um, but other vendors are largely, you know, a gumption of some entrepreneur.
0: Hmm. And you're thinking of how do we partner with them to. How do we better? partner
1: with them to like, you know, to incentivize the sale of healthy product and then the placement of vendors selling healthful products in the communities most in need and then also restricting you know those selling less helpful products or selling the, you know the people selling the cotton candy and the hot dogs and the um you know the donut trucks and you know those kind yeah, of things we, yeah, like yeah. we don't necessarily need more of the, the no. ice cream van coming around no, it was
0: interesting there was an article in the new york times in this whole series called "Planet fat about brazil and how in these poor communities way up in the mountains they had these little push carts but they were not yeah. filled with healthy food they were filled with processed food and yeah. sugar it was thought to be healthy and promoted as better than in poor communities they didn't know better and so they're thinking well we're just going to have this powdered shake or we're going to have this process this or that and it's healthy yeah. and it's a, uh, you know shifting to a model where you actually i mean i you know my, my family moved here from uh russia and poland at the turn of the century nineteenth century and my grand great grandparents all I had push carts, you know, selling pickles or, you know, thumb 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 uh like sewing stuff and thimbles. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's like that's a whole different way of actually creating a more distributive egalitarian yeah. uh, and better quality access to food than, than is in these communities. Right. Yeah.
1: But it's challenging, um, and, you know, and it's not. It's not. Uh, I shouldn't represent it as a single solution or even mm. the solution, mm. but I think it's one strategy that could be helpful. I mean, one of the challenges and one of the things that our research um, made clear was that um, you know, not being protected in these you know enclosed boxes, these are vendors who are vulnerable to the weather, right? And so yeah. when the weather's not nice. They're not out. I mean, if it's
0: hot out, you know, your lettuce is going to be kind of gross and wilted. Well, <laughs>
1: that's a, that's another issue. So, like, the perishability and how quickly you have to move product yeah. uh, is another issue. Hmm. Um, but so, yeah, weather plays a key role. Um, and, um, um, you know, and then also the the distribution of unhealthful to healthful currently is not ideal.
0: So do you find yourself like a unicorn in the health system in the Bronx? I mean, is, is there interest in this? I mean, are you just out there in the wilderness crying and... Nobody's I, paying attention, or like what? Because it no, just no, seems people, like oh no, people are definitely. It seems interested. like such I a, think, I a, think a that, different model of like how yeah, you're thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, but no, we,
1: we so and I think our health system is interested, and I think increasingly, you know, as accountable care organizations and as there's, you know, as reimbursement is linked to or payment is linked to how communities do and how, um, uh, how much you engage in health promotion and disease mm-hmm. prevention as opposed to just, you know, treating disease when it comes to your door. Um, I think those things all uh, lead to having interest in these types of initiatives. Yeah. And so, so our a, just, just is to be clear for people them. who are listening
0: yeah. value based care means that you're going to get paid for doing the right thing and getting people healthy and better outcomes at lower costs rather than just doing more stuff. Like right now, everybody wins the more surgeries you do, the more procedures you do, the more visits you have, the more medications. That's how the system is rigged now, and and there's a movement afoot to change the reimbursement to pay for actually people getting better and doing better at lower costs, which then motivates initiatives. But the problem with healthcare systems is they don't know how to do this. This isn't their bailiwick. This isn't their bodega, so to speak, and they don't actually understand how to actually be in the community, drive these changes where the problem is.
1: No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the bigger healthcare systems recognize that and are experimenting with it. And, you know, I mentioned some of the initiatives,
0: yeah. you know, in our health system and around
1: the country. And but what's I the health system you work in? It's Montefiore, Montefiore, Montefiore which system. is a in Bronx, Einstein, and it's yeah. The predominant provider of yeah. care in the Bronx. I mean, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's a behemoth and, um, and it engages in a lot of good work. I mean, I think our, you know, Office of Community Health uh, and the community health folks uh, in the health system, are, you know, doing a lot of this work, um, including like some mapping stuff, you know, to see where kind of the hot spots are for obesity and diet related diseases and then li- linking that up to, you know, retail outlets and what the food sources are and, you know, are these the areas that we want to target and, you know, where, are they, where, where do we want to focus our attention and that kind of thing. Um so I mean there's a lot of interesting work. And yes, I don't think anybody knows how to do this, but we're all experimenting and we're all trying things. And I think like I said And the leadership
0: know, in the Montreal Health System is engaged and interested in doing this kind of fully stuff. Fully supportive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think so. That's uh from great. the top down. Um because there's there's benefit to it. I mean it's a financial win too, right? It's not
0: you know As long as you're getting I mean, paid it, it's it's
1: altruistic, it. but I mean like there's you know, like if you keep patients healthy, you're rewarded for that. If you yeah keep them from getting readmitted, you know, you're rewarded for that. If, um, you we're know,
0: kind of though in that no man's land where all the payments aren't value-based. And right. they're still, like, we're experiencing that at Cleveland Clinic where we're trying to create a whole new initiative called Cleveland Clinic Community Care. And and that is a wonderful population health initiative to try to do these things. But we're all at the same time feeling the pressure of, you know, how do we, you know, pay the overhead when we have, uh, you know, all these pressures around volume. And it's, yeah. it's a tough no man's land.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I think to your point earlier, I mean, maybe uh, it's not doctors who should be doing this. I mean, doctors can be engaged in this work and probably mm-hmm. should be mm-hmm. and should pay attention to it, but we're not experts in this realm. Have
0: you um, use community health workers, use health use community health
1: workers you use health uh, coaches. community health workers, use, you know, um, you use uh, uh, diabet- diabetic educators, you use mm-hmm. nutritionists, you use uh, social workers, you know, it's a whole team. Um, and, you know, through That collaboration and through that kind of team based model where everyone has a role, um, you know, something good comes. Hmm. Um, And are you
0: guys measuring how these initiatives and things are working?
1: So, you know, the the research aspect has been, uh, or or the assessment evaluation has been less rigorous. uh, And and that's one place where we need to grow. Um, But
0: um, it's beautiful. I think Bloomberg gave $30 million to assess the impact of some of these policy changes in places like mexico and chile and the impact they have on the health of the population consumption patterns yeah sure well well, i think the
1: department of health in new york uh uh, dohmh department of health and mental hygiene you know has a lot of initiatives in this uh, space and has done some evaluation i mean one of the exciting things so you know i mentioned um the green carts or the you know fruit and vegetable Mm -hmm. vendors So, uh, one piece that I saw them publish, uh, and I never saw the follow-up, this was just kind of a one, a one pager or a brief, but what it suggested was that in the communities where these vendors are placed or locate or where they Mm -hmm. find themselves, Mm -hmm. that there is a broader fruit and vegetable provision across the board. So not just from the mobile vendors themselves, but from the surrounding storefront businesses, because they see. Well, these vendors come in, and now they're, you know, getting a market share and maybe taking customers away or whatever, and so they compete on that, and now they start providing fruits and vegetables themselves, and so the overall provision for the community improves, and there's those ripple effects like I talked about before. And so you're saying that. your
0: patients want this stuff. It's not like you're providing these access, but then they don't. We don't want buy that. We want to buy. Well, them. they sure. do
1: and they don't. So again, to my point earlier about you know the generational differences and the increased reliance on. Um, Processed you know, processed food. food. And to your point about, you know, the marketing, you know, th- these, the food industry knows that if you get kids early and you set up their tastes, habits, patterns, behaviors in childhood, you've got a customer it's for life. life. Right. And so like, you know, you get kids hooked on like sugary, salty, fatty, you know, unhealthful processed stuff. Mm-hmm. They're less, uh, amenable to trying like the healthier things. Yeah. Um, that said parents, patients, Uh, those who are suffering know that they need to change, want to change and want these options. Uh, and when they come, I think are appreciative, right? Uh, They're appreciative of any assistance you can give to help navigate. You know, I think you use the word toxic and I I don't think that's misplaced, the toxic (laughs) environment, right? This, this environment that's just overwhelming, this overwhelming, ubiquitous abundance of unhealthful, less healthy stuff. That's right there for impulse purchases in the communities that need them the least with just these small pockets of good things to find uh, in the way. And so helping them find those small pockets of good things and how to maximize them and optimize them and make them more available and um, uh,
0: uh, more available to them. Okay. Final question. You are given complete authority to make sweeping changes in healthcare and our food system and health policies, food policies. What are the top things that you would focus on to have the biggest impact to transform our Disease creating economy and our bad health, chronic disease epidemic, and our toxic food system.
1: Uh, well, I Given th- what you know, because you've yeah, been yeah.
0: studying this your whole life and you know more than everybody how to do this. Well, I know little. more than everybody. But I have done a lot of there. work in
1: this area and I've thought about it a bit. I mean, I think as a guiding principle, we want to encourage less food from factories and more food from farms. So less less food from industrial processing plants and more food from living botanical plants. Yeah. That's and, a Michael Pond. Yeah. So
0: if it was grown in a plant. Eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't eat it. Some, yeah, some <laughs> like, that's, a,
1: that's a rough paraphrasing, but yeah, I th- that, that sounds Polynesque. Um So I, I think, um, so marketing is key. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about that, you know, uh, a few times during this segment. And I think uh, that's a huge lever and one that, um, um, I think could um, could produce a lot of benefit if we could restrict the marketing of less healthful things and promote the marketing of more healthful things. I think that would be um, uh, hugely impactful on the uh, demand mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. On the supply side, I think we have to, you know, subsidize the production of healthful foods and not, you know, reward, um, you know, these commodity crops that are, you know, Overproduced and toxic, not only to us but to our planet and to like uh, broader health more generally. Um, so I, I think you know, working on the food production, the the supply side, working on um, uh, advertising, marketing, education, and desire to eat healthy on the on the demand side. Um, you know, those are those are kind of the two things that I would try yeah. to address simultaneously. And there may be multiple mechanisms to do that. I don't know that anyone's found. The one right solution. I don't know. If there is one right solution. I think this is a complex, multifactorial process, uh, pr- a problem that requires a, a multifaceted approach.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. In, in Europe, they don't use high fructose corn syrup because it's more expensive. And I, I talked to the vice chair of Pepsi once, and he's like, "Mark, the reason we it's use It's more
1: expensive than sugar."
0: Yeah, I said the reason because of tariffs or trade more expensive
1: than sugar. Not here. Yeah, that's what I mean. In oh, Europe. oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And
0: so, but he said, "Mark, in, in this country, like it's." so cheap the government makes it so cheap that Incredibly i can't afford cheap. not to use it as yeah, a businessman not
1: to you that's exactly right you can't afford not right. so, to so so that's the problem yeah so when you live in a world where that's the reality where you can't afford not to do the unhealthy thing yeah
0: yeah then you've got a problem so it's true to- so so dealing with the marketing and the education all the pieces around what drives behavior which we know very well from yeah. advertising marketing and two providing supports and incentives for growing the right kind of food and removing the supports and incentives for doing the wrong kind of food production. Yeah.
1: But I think, so this has been, uh, a generational decline, right? So mm-hmm. this process has not happened overnight. Uh, I mean, it's been insidious in lots of respects and it's been, um, um, it's been a process that, um, has taken time to get to where it is. And I think coming, you know, climbing out of that hole, is likewise going to take generations, right? You don't, mm-hmm. you don't just flip a switch and change things overnight. I mean, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, you know, tastes, habits, behaviors, preferences developed, you know, in infancy or maybe even before birth, yeah. uh, you know, with, with, um, um, you know, exposures during, um, you know, prenatal, uh, during the prenatal period. Yeah. I,
0: w- I would so, love to see one more thing. I would love to see yeah. our government and our states and cities, um, incentivize, pay for our train and deploy a million or more community health workers and health coaches because you and I as doctors, we're not gonna be able to solve this problem. We need people in the communities, in people's homes, like you said, taking them to grocery shopping, showing them how to make something with an avocado, how to actually find the right kinds of foods, what to do with it, people wanna know. And that was the most striking thing that you said today for me was you were dealing with some of the most um, sick and, and disadvantaged people in this country and they want to get better they want to do the right thing they want to make healthy choices they don't know how they can't get access and they aren't aware of what to do and it's just too difficult environment so changing that is huge and i think that's really the message here is that that we have to start blame stop blaming the individual and start changing the environment that they live in in a real way with real incentives that i think are happening there are pockets of innovation oh, yeah. and creativity happening you mentioned a lot of them during this show and i think that's really what people need to focus on it's not necessarily waiting for the government to fix it but you know oh, no, people I, can actually yeah. start doing things like the community gardens like the community where agriculture like yes the, the the things that cities are doing like these green cards i mean these are like little little solutions that aren't going to solve the whole problem but if enough of this starts happening it starts to shift the culture and shift the Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I I don't think you're going to legislate your way out of this uh, problem. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, in terms of cultural shift, and one of the the other things I didn't mention that we do in our clinic is group visits. And the nice thing about a group visit is you don't need community health workers. You create a community of patients, and patients learn from each other. And Mm -hmm. everyone knows something, and everyone contributes to the group. It's so true. And so you get that group think, that group knowledge. Very powerful. And then you can have group successes. And, you know, you build those groups, and then they... You know translate to broader changes broader so cultural you know community, community families, cultural societal and changes families and, yeah yeah so and that's another part of the uh, solution i think just. yeah
0: we do that at cleveland clinic and what we're finding is that people who are in the groups yeah have far better outcomes and medical outcomes sure. than the ones doing one-on-one visits with the doctor Absolutely well because there's value in social right. support yeah. there's
1: yeah. value in recognizing you're not the only one yeah there's value in learning from your peers there's value in having that support network. Yeah, I
0: always say community is the cure and group is the medicine. I, I did a TED. Ted that's a, good. That's nice. Yeah, a TED TED Med talk called uh, "If We Can't Cure the Patient, Can the Community?" And I believe strongly that that's really where the yeah. focus of healthcare has to be. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks Sean, for having me. Again. This is an amazing physician, researcher, thinker in this space. Uh, very brave. take on these (laughs) issues Uh, and if you've enjoyed this conversation be sure to subscribe to the doctor's pharmacy uh, anywhere you get your podcasts if you like this show please leave a review we'd love to hear from you and we hope to see you next time on the doctor's pharmacy
1: thanks a lot hey
0: everybody i just wanted to remind you all that the information in this episode is not intended to be used as medical advice always work with your doctor and if you can Find a functional medicine doctor. My staff, including physicians and nutritionists at the Ultra Wellness Center in Massachusetts, is trained in functional medicine to find the root cause of disease and create health for you every step of the way. For more information about the Ultra Wellness Center, visit ultrawellnesscenter.com.